from the beginning of God's word to the end of Revelation, to the end when he returns and calls us home, it is all about God's glory. It is about the Lord bringing glory to himself through his people that he comes to save and to redeem. Why did you come this morning? Why do we come each week? Why do we go through the liturgy that we've just been practicing? Why do we open up the word of God and seek to hear from the Holy Spirit? It's for his glory. Because in that news, God reveals to us that he has sent his son to save sinners. And he alone can do that. He has accomplished it through his death and resurrection and reign. And now our great high priest even lives to intercede on our behalf. And one day Jesus is going to return. And when he does, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The little church that received this letter we call Hebrews heard constantly from their pastor, remember, remember the great savior. Remember the great high priest. Remember Jesus who is greater than the prophets, greater than the priest. He's the high priest. And now he takes this portion of Hebrews and he calls the people to look back at the old covenant, the old rituals, the old order for how they were to worship God. Remember, God is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth. And in the old covenant, this is how they did that. And what he does so beautifully, and it's dense, it's loaded, he speaks then of the new tent, which is Christ, the new covenant, and how Christ is better because he's the fulfillment of that which all of those things, including the furniture that was in the tabernacle, were pointing to him. This is an amazing passage. Let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. We're going to read uh, Revelation, I'm sorry, not Revelation, Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 15. It is on page 5 and then page 6 of your bulletin. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. 
But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father in heaven, as we open your holy word, we indeed need your spirit, the Holy Spirit, to illuminate these very words for our hearts and our minds to make us different even today. It's your word. We trust it. We turn to you. We ask you to explain it to us and to press it so deeply into our hearts and minds that it must find a way of escape. And that would be us speaking the truth to others in love of what it means to belong to you in Christ. In his holy name we pray, amen. Imagine hearing that section of this sermon for the first time. It's very, very dense, not dull, because it's full of blood and sacrifice and imagery and beauty. The pastor of this small house church is seeking to encourage them with the reality of a new covenant that's in Christ that fulfills what the old covenant could not. The old covenant you're going to see as I preach was limited. It was limited in its access and it was limited in its efficacy, but not so the new covenant, not Jesus. But in order to understand it, he takes them back. He begins to describe something of the old tent, the old tabernacle. And as he explains those things that are there in verse 5, the second part of verse 5, he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. It didn't mean that they weren't important. It's just that this small church already knew what he was talking about. They were very familiar with the tabernacle. They were very familiar with the furnishings of the tabernacle. They understood the elements that were in the sanctuary as well as the service of the priests. But we are not. We may have a, a, stubble, a study Bible that we open and learn a little bit about the covenant, the old covenant and the tabernacle. You may remember something on a flannel graph from when you were a child, but this is very significant because all of the things that are present inside there really shadow the promise of the one who will fulfill them. So for just a minute, I want us to, to look at this earthly tabernacle. I want us to see the things that this pastor was referencing. First, you'll note in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, now even the first covenant had, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. 
So God, from the beginning, has been about his people worshiping him. He has sought worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, and he has enabled the way for that to happen. He has given precise regulations for how the people in this old covenant were to worship him. Those words were given to Moses specifically, from Moses to those who would then build these furnishings, from Moses to the priest who would then serve in this tabernacle the right way. But what I want you to see first is that the people understood that all that was spoken and all that was being built was about the holiness of God. In the church today, all across our city and all across the world, people will attend who are going to a church for the first time. No doubt, Sunday after Sunday, new people come through the doors of this church and because of Christ, we long to welcome them, hoping they will find their way to a church home. Remember in Dallas how many churches there are. One. That's true in America and all around the world. There's one true church. And that church is made up of many expressions of smaller churches. We are one small expression of the true church, capital C. Because of that, the head of his church has enabled God's people to worship him in spirit and truth. But in the modern world that we live in, we have been infected with a disease called consumerism. And even the way in which we approach church, so often it is born out of what I like, what I want, what can this church do for me? Do I like their music? Do I like his or her preaching? Do I like the way the people dress? Do I like what I'm allowed to bring in or encouraged not to bring in? Now I'm gonna say a few things and I want you to hear that this is not a shot at any specific church. Because if I was taking a shot at a church, I would be taking a shot at his body. So don't hear me incorrectly. But this infection has caused people to approach worship in a way that is often erroneous in the way in which we move towards worshiping God. There is a relaxed casualness that is present in this church and in many other expressions of his true church, where we simply lose sight of the fact that we are worshiping the one true, holy, other, majestic God who created you and everyone, who created everything we see, and who by the word of his power is upholding all things for his glory. He is transcendent. He's utterly different. He is majestic and beautiful. And if you were to see him in just a flash, you would fall flat on your face, prostrate down because of his radiant beauty. Today, we tend to forget that he's that way, that he's majestic, 
And there is a relaxed casualness that comes into us where we treat the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with a casualness that is not appropriate. That doesn't mean that Jesus isn't our friend. That doesn't mean that we should walk into this place in utter terror, which is the opposite of being relaxed and casual. Some of you, when I said relaxed and casual, did this. Be careful, because what I'm about to say to you is equally dangerous. And that is where you don't enter in with a relaxed casualness, but with a self-righteous condemnation. And that self-righteous condemnation has your head swiveling horizontally too, where you're looking at others and other places and how they might worship with a spirit of condemnation. And actually that which is maybe going towards others is coming from you because you've laid that condemnation on yourself. Christians are not to enter into a public place of worship or in their private time of worship with condemnation. Because the word of God says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. It doesn't say there's still a little condemnation depending on how well you did with your quiet time or how well you served with humility or how zealous you were to proclaim truth, the gospel tells us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of his mercy. And if you paid even a little bit of attention to the service today, you see these tensions. Even in the song, Holy, 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 he's merciful. Oh, he is. Every day, his mercies are made new, but he's majestic. Fear of God is appropriate, but not fear of condemnation. Singing that God opens his arms and welcomes us is appropriate but not in such a casual way where we say, Jesus is my buddy. He's the living God. He's utterly different. He's transcendent. And yet, he's more intimate with you who are in Christ than the most intimate relationship you know. He's in you. So it's not relaxed casualness by which we approach the worship of God, nor is it self-righteous condemnation of ourselves or others. It's something different. And it's the same thing every time. It is this reverent confidence, this reverent awe and wonder of God, confident because of who I am in Jesus, that I can boldly approach his holy throne. No matter what my week has looked like, no matter what is going on in my heart and mind, because I'm in Christ, covered in Christ, one with Christ, I receive his mercy. When the people that received this letter were called to think back upon the old covenant, 
in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So when the people would come to worship God, they had not lost sight of his holiness. Tradition had passed on verbally from one to another about who this God is, his power, what he was able to accomplish, his presence there leading the people, the manna that came, this tradition of the history of redemption passed on and on. And then this pastor of this letter, Hebrews, begins to talk specifically about the tent for a few minutes. And then he says, of these things, we cannot speak in detail now. He wasn't saying they're not important. They just weren't the most important point he was trying to make. But for us, we need to know something of them. So I want you to lean in for a minute. As I do my best in just a couple of minutes to describe this first tent, the first tabernacle. Approaching the, the tent shrine as a human, coming to make a sacrifice or have a sacrifice offered on your behalf, you would first of all have been struck by the holiness. Remember, the word holiness means set apart. And Moses receiving this, the prescription, the details of what this tabernacle was supposed to look like, faithfully called on those people to build it, and they did. So the first thing you would notice or be impressed by would be the white linen walls of the court of the tabernacle. This was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. The uniform whiteness of this linen would have struck you with the holiness of God. When worshipers entered the courtyard, they were immediately in front of the altar of the burnt offering. And that was as far as they could go. There, the offering of the burnt offering, this bronze altar was at the front of this courtyard. They would then see this, this bronze altar. It had horns on it. It's where things would be sacrificed for their sins. But that was as far as they could go. That was the first limit of the old covenant, the old tabernacle. There was limited access. Behind the bronze altar of the tabernacle was the flat-roofed oblong tent, 15 feet high, 15 feet wide, and 45 feet long. It was covered in three layers, and the layers were beautiful. They were threads of yarn and linen sewed together, sewed together a blue and purple and scarlet. And then they were followed by two layers of animal skins. Again, sacrifice is at the center. In order for atonement to have taken place, blood had to be spilled. And in this case, it was the blood of animals. The tabernacle then was divided into two rooms. This author takes the people back there and he speaks of the first room being that which was holy and then the second chamber being the holy of holies. From this sanctuary, he, he describes what's inside there. In the first chamber, he mentions the lampstand and the table of the presence. The lampstand was made of solid gold and it had three branches coming off of each side. 
and there were seven branches supporting a flower-shaped lamp holder. Now remember, everything there is pointing to Christ. So here, the light of the world to come is presented in a way that they can't fully understand. Then on this table, sometimes called the table of presence, can contain 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, but also foreshadowing the one who is going to come and say, I am the bread of life. In the second chamber, the author of Hebrews speaks of the altar of incense. It's actually outside that, but he's trying to draw the connection for how intimate and close it is to the mercy seat. And there is the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. And inside that is the gold jar of manna, God's provision for the people of Israel, but also foreshadowing, again, the bread of life. Aaron's staff, the priest that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant, the law are there. And then above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, the mercy seat where blood was shed. All of those things pointing to the greater sacrifice, the one true great high priest. That's what was in the tabernacle, and it mattered. But he says to them about those details, Essentially, I don't have time to speak. I want to move on to the service of the priest. And here you see two limits to this old covenant. The first limit is regarding who can enter. Only the priest have access. And then only those who by lot receive this moment, the high mark of their life, to serve. These daily and weekly rituals of sacrifice taking place where those who receive this call by lot are able to go in and keep the lampstand burning and to replace the bread that's on the table of presence with new bread. That taking place daily and weekly, but then only once a year, even more limited access, the high priest goes into the most holy the holy of holies, and not without blood. The author of this little letter is saying, I'm sharing all of this with you because it shows that there was limited access and limited efficacy. He goes on in this letter with the things I just read and says that these things could not atone for everything. They could take care of flesh and unintentional sins but they could not clear the conscience. And what he was saying is, there's one who has come. And the one who has come is the second tent, the true tent, the true tabernacle. And this one who has come is named Jesus. And there is not going to be limited access any longer because of Christ, nor is there gonna be limited efficacy because his death is not going to be with the blood of goats and heifers. It's going to be his very own personal blood. In his own personal blood, Jesus, fully God, fully man, is going to pay once and for all, not just once a year, once and for all, the sacrifice that is required so that all who trust in Christ will not be limited in access 
they will have direct access, meaning that if you are in Christ, you have direct access to God because of our great high priest. You don't have to pray through me or another priest. You don't have to come to a place of confession to a man who's going to be your mediator, the man, the one who made you, the Savior, Jesus, the great high priest, has paid the price. He is the great high priest. The passage goes on then to describe what happened. Look at the bulletin or in your Bible, verse 11. After speaking about the limited access and about the limited efficacy of the old system, the old tabernacle, the old tent, he then speaks of Christ, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, all of those things in that old tabernacle were pointing to this. When they had come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So here's the difference. The first tabernacle, limited, once a year, made with hands, therefore it could be destroyed, and it was, and it was, and it was, but not so the second tabernacle. It's not on earth. It's not made with hands. It's in heaven. It's kept for all eternity. This first temple, tabernacle, earthly, animal's blood drawn, centered on forgiveness that related only to unintentional sins in the flesh. But now the second, Jesus, the tent, once and for all, unlimited access in heaven, complete, our Savior's blood, effective for all of our sin. So how could we, upon hearing what had to happen in order for us to worship him in spirit and truth, how could we ever just think casually about Jesus, our high priest. At the same time, how could we hear such good news that clearly says we could never do this on our own? How could we live in a self-righteous condemnation that somehow, because I think I'm better than others, the Lord's gonna think the same of me too. That's the danger. Either way, what the word of God is saying is that God is holy. Because Jesus came, who is a friend of sinners, and because he died for your sins and mine, for the sins of his children, we never need to fear being condemned by him. To understand the significance of what was required in order for you to be here today to worship him is not a casual event. It's God himself 
sending his only son, who is God. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, contemplating the cup that he was about to drink, knowing what it would mean to be the great high priest and become the sacrifice, that perfect spotless lamb and what was necessary, he says to his friends, stay here, pray for me. He says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Luke tells us who's a physician that the pressure was so great that the body of Christ was sweating blood. Literally, capillaries underneath his skin had burst. And Jesus goes to the Father, the author of salvation, the author of this plan of redemption to save his people that they might worship him in spirit and truth after the fall of Adam and Eve. And Jesus prays to him and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will be done, but yours. The Old Testament records the words in the prophets that God said, or it said of God, it was his will to crush his son. How can we take that casually? How can we think we could add anything to that with reverent awe and humility, with confidence in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? We receive and rest in Jesus alone. That is not just true for PCPC. It's true for all of his church. In every church that exists, I promise you, people are tempted to be too relaxed and casual, are too self-righteous and condemning. What the gospel is telling us is come with reverence and confidence. The living God has done everything necessary for you to worship him in spirit and truth. But it's resting and receiving in him alone that enables us to avoid those two catastrophic realms of casualness and condemnation. You as those who are in Christ never need to fear your true standing before the living God because of his mercy. But you, us who are in Christ, must never forget his majesty, must never forget his power, must never forget that he is serious about his holiness. The one who started this work in you is bringing it to completion. And some days you may feel further along than others, but Christian, 
you who are in Christ, you're gaining ground. One witness of God's faithfulness is seen in this little letter to this small church. They were tempted because of fear of persecution to return back to the old covenant. But because the one who started this work in their life, enabling them to embrace Jesus, because he started that work, he brought this individual to preach to them this message. And his message was this. The old was limited. The new is complete. You have access to the holy God. His work on the cross is finished. Now that man is praying for you, living to intercede for you. And one day that man is going to return. And when he does, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because he is. Father in heaven, your word is powerful and it is true. You are mighty and merciful. You tell us over and over again to fear God and yet we can approach you freedom and confidence. Lord, as we sing this triumphant song, let us feel deeply into our soul the truth that we are gaining ground because of who we are and our victorious Savior, the one more perfect tent. Amen.